I'm Ken Kurzel, and I'm here with my partner, Katie Davis. Welcome to the, the December 2020 episode of News & Brews Sports Biz, our to-the-point video and podcast series that features new developments impacting the business of college sports. Name, image, and likeness is the topic today. Joining us is sports attorney, Justin Siebert. Justin is senior counsel at Vela Wood, where he chairs the firm's sports and compliance practice and has extensive experience navigating compliance-related matters across all three NCAA divisions. And another fun fact that I'm particularly excited about, he is also a home brewer. Uh, both Justin and Katie are gonna share tips that you perhaps haven't heard when it comes to legal, financial, and NCAA regulatory impacts of NIL. So welcome, Justin, and thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, glad to be here. Right. Um, so, Justin, tell us a little bit about your background and what started your interest in NIL. Yeah, so as, as you said, I'm an attorney um, primarily working in the sports law field. I got started, I attended Union College where I was a student athlete, football and track and field, and then I coached and got my master's degree, finally went to law school and and then graduated and kind of became a became an attorney in the sports law area. And my practice is is primarily devoted to you know, helping colleges and universities and professional sports teams on various issues. And among those are NCAA compliance and Title IX. Um, so that really kind of piqued my interest in the name, image, and likeness legislation because it really hits all areas of my practice, you know, from the NCAA perspective. Like I said, compliance and Title IX. And then from my, my other side of my practice, which is kind of helping negotiate sponsorship deals, helping uh, businesses structure deals, um, and really just getting businesses off the ground. So it really touches my practice and my firm's practice from all areas. So obviously NIL legislation has been evolving quite a bit over the last year. Um, as you've watched it evolve and seen the different legislation, what are two or three of the bigger issues that give you heartburn really as you um, think about this and you see uh, what schools need to do to be aware of as it relates to it? You know, I think the number one thing that, that schools need to realize is this is right around the corner. I mean, right now we're living in a, in a obviously a, a strange time with COVID and trying to figure that out. Schools are trying to navigate the football season, trying to see what's in play for their winter and spring sports. And that's, that's paramount in what's going on within athletics departments and conferences. But right on deck is this name, image, and likeness issue. Florida is going to be the first bill to go into effect um, July 1st of 2021. California yesterday just, you know, released a potential, you know, amendment to their bill, which would push their starting date up 17 months, which would make their bill start on August 1st of 2021. And then the NCAA legislation that's been proposed, which is expected to pass at the convention in January, is also going to start in August of, August of 2021. So we're really looking at less than a year until this is likely going to be a reality and i think the expectation of most people was that all right we have time there's going to be federal legislation that's going to make sure kind of we're all on the same page with this but it, what it looks like right now absent you know kind of congress coming in and, and putting something together very quickly is we're going to have one to two states operating on one set of rules and then your other 48 states you know following NCAA legislation as it relates to this issue so I think for institutions, what that means is, you know, on one hand, how do we figure out, you know, what this all means for us, you know, and then once we fit that in, like, how do we educate the people at our school and the other key stakeholders on these issues? I mean, we're not just talking about 
student athletes, you know, we're talking about coaches, we're talking for people who run their social media accounts, we're talking about boosters, we're talking about their compliance staff, we're talking about their Title IX office, we're talking about all these different areas, and they all need to have a good understanding of what their requirements are. And then once you have an understanding of what you can and can't do, you have to make the decision, what are you going to do? And then how do we monitor what we're doing to make sure we're checking all these legal and risk boxes? So I think you know, the number one thing is is timing. This is an issue that's right around the corner. And, you know, most people I talk to, they're having, you know, surface level conversations and meetings about this, but it's really not going any deeper than that at this point because mm. the focus is on other things. And that's that's fair. But at the same time, I think schools need to start working towards formulating a game plan that really solves some of these problems that potentially could occur. And Katie, same question to you. Um, what are two or three areas that uh, that really get your attention on this? Um, exactly like Justin said. I mean, I think um, you know, from a financial standpoint, um, really focusing on more than the surface level financial literacy training. And you know, schools do a great job of offering that within their academic services and life skills type training that they offer to their athletes, but. Um, it's going to have to be a little bit deeper than that. It's going to have to really focus on, um, you know, what are the what are the actual impacts of earning money when you're in school um, versus when you get out of school. So, you know, not only are the athletes going to need, need to be trained, but their parents, um, the staff, you know, the academic services, compliance, um, your coaches, to make sure that um, they understand you know, they don't need to know the details or be as, you know, educated as a CPA, but at least understanding some if-thens. Um, I'm brainstorming right now with a Power 5 CEO on a re CFO on a resource where we can talk through if-then scenarios. Um, for example, you know, related to federal and state income taxes, um, related to the impact on federal student aid EFCs that are used for receiving Pell Grants. Um, what's a tax planning strategy versus a tax evasion strategy and um you know that that really leads me to my other concern is that there's a lot of bad information out there um you know there is a lack of information and updates on nil because the pandemic has been a priority uh, unc center for research in intercollegiate athletics just released a report a few weeks ago that surveyed over 1200 athletes and um one of the concerns that came out of that was that there really wasn't enough information and education from athletic departments, which makes sense. You're in a pandemic. You um, don't want to put the cart before the horse. And until legislation's final, you don't want to make speculations. And, and I get that. But I think in the case of financial literacy and income taxes, those things aren't changing. So the, if you can get ahead of that and get ahead of some of the bad information, um, Eric Smith, who is also well known in the industry as the financial literacy coach, um, sent me a TikTok that a Big Ten school sent him uh, recently asking if some of the advice that was on that was true. Um, one of the examples was uh, create an LLC and funnel the money to your parents and then gift it back to you. And it would basically be a tax free uh, event. And that's not good advice. Um, so, you know, stay informed, uh, shut down the bad advice, offer a replacement so that 
you have something and and I think the athletes want to get information from a source they trust, which would be the university and, and your athletic department and your staff that are dedicated to your athletes. Um, but when you're not informing them and educating them and communicating with them frequently on this, they're going to go elsewhere um, and get that information. So you want to be really careful there as well. Yeah, and I think it's an, an easy point that I, it's fair to say that TikTok is not a great source for, for tax <laughs> advice. So, yeah. Um, Justin, one of the things you mentioned in your previous answer related to Title IX, uh, you highlighted that a little bit. I guess I'm struggling a little bit to understand how Title IX comes into play if the institutions themselves are not actually you know, giving the compensation and, and therefore having to try to give it in an equal manner. Um, so so how, does, how does Title IX come into play with NIL? Yeah, I think that's a, a common, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an argument you see on social media quite a bit, like does Title IX come into play or does it not? I think the common perception for the people who say it doesn't come into play is, well, we have a third party that's going to ultimately be compensating the, the athletes. So why is that a Title IX issue for the institution? And kind of the, to rewind a bit and discuss what Title IX actually like looks at and what it requires, I mean, you're really talking about three separate com components. You're talking about providing equitable opportunities. You're talking about providing equitable financial athletics assistance um, in terms of aid. And you're talking in scholarships and you're talking about um, the laundry list, which is really kind of equitable treatment on all of these different core components of a student athlete's journey on campus. You're talking about um, things like publicity or, or, or educational assistance or facilities or uniforms, things of that nature. Right. Um, so obviously with, with this, I mean, it's not an athletics financial assistance issue because we're talking about a third party being the compensating, the compensator to the student athletes. But when you look at the laundry list, what you what you have to think about is, is how you approach, you know, your name, image, and likeness program can impact some of those different laundry list items. For example, publicity. If you're if you're helping out, you know, certain sports teams more than others in terms of social media promotion and you know just programming in terms of what your sports information office is doing in marketing opportunities, what you're doing is you're giving them an advantage in terms of securing payment for their name, image, and likeness. Additionally, if you look at what you're doing from an academic standpoint, if you're providing certain segments of your of your student athlete body with uh, you know financial literacy training or training on how to run a business or training in terms of like marketing, like you have like an influencer in Open Dorset County, you're only putting that for your football and men's basketball student athletes, but nobody else. Well, you're providing different things to to one segment of your student body. If if it's more male than female, then that can obviously cause Title IX mm -hmm. concerns. Now, it's important to remember with the laundry list, you're never making a side-by-side a -side comparison. What you're doing is you're taking a look at all your programs, all those all those laundry list items, and basically looking at what the disparities are for each one of those components and then making a disparity analysis, which is going to ultimately give you your final decision. But all those decisions will come into play in terms of what you're doing with your name, image, and likeness program. So I think institutions, when they when they look at this, they're kind of looking at it in terms of like, how can we help market our student athletes, and you know, who do we who do we provide those services to? Well, Title IX is going to come into play in, in those areas. So even if you're not the compensating party, your ability and your your willingness to help certain parts of your student athlete body is going to is going to be an issue if you're helping you know ultimately helping your male student athletes more than your female student athletes. 
No, that's great. Great points. Um, Katie, I, I, one of the things you mentioned uh, was state income taxes. Um, so what are some scenarios where student athletes could be subject to state income tax, especially if they play for a school that has no state income tax like here in Florida? Um, yeah, so before I go there, I want to um, touch on what Justin said, because I did um, a few, couple months ago saw an announcement from a group of five school that announced their NIL program and I sent a congratulatory email to the CFO at the school and just said, oh, this is awesome. I'd love to chat with you more about this. And um, that person's response back to me was, yeah, I'd like to learn more about it too. Uh, our football coach just threw this together and I'm, you know, just learning about it too. So, I mean, I think if, if your compliance department or your student athlete, you know, academic services department isn't spearheading your NIL initiatives, then you're probably going to, um, you know, be scrutinized a little more about what Justin said with some of the Title IX issues. So it just reminded me of that story. And, um, mm. you know, the more you can get ahead of that and maybe rein your coaches in a little bit, which I know CFOs are used to doing a lot, um, you know, I think you'll benefit from that um, as well. But back to your question, Ken, on state income taxes. Um, yeah, each state's different. Um, we have a map on our website. So if you go to jmco.com at the top um, under industries, collegiate athletics, there's a name image likeness page and that can help you better visualize what I'm talking about here. Um, we have an interactive map that shows um, what NIL legislation is happening and it also shows individual income tax um, rules for the various states. Um, so one example is you have a a student athlete who's from South Carolina but comes to Florida to play sports. Um, so the state of Florida doesn't have an income tax, but the state of South Carolina does. Theirs is um, subject to rates as high as 7% for earnings over around $3,000. So um, they, if their parents still live in South Carolina, their permanent residents of South Carolina, they could be subject to South Carolina state taxes in addition to federal income tax. And then to further complicate that, let's say the athlete is a football player and goes to a ball game in California or Arizona, Louisiana, Georgia, all of those states are subject to income tax. They all have different rules. Um, but you could, um, you know, have a gymnastics um, student athlete that goes to play, goes to the finals in Texas. There is no state income tax in Texas. Um, but regardless, if they're making an appearance, while they're at some of these, um, you know, playoffs or things like that, and their schools are allowing it and they can earn an income from it, then um, they could potentially be subject to state income tax in those states as well. All the states have different rules. Some of the states um, will allow for deductions for taxes paid in other states. Other ones may not. So it's pretty complicated. And, and I would say um, it's not something that's just straightforward. And um, one of the things that concerns me is that with complex issues like this, um, you know, even if it's not a big deal um, and even if, you know, final regulations don't put you responsible for this at the end of the day, if one of your student athletes gets in trouble for income tax reasons, the headline's going to say tax evasion, student athlete, um, and it's going to blow back on the university and look really bad for you. So if you're protecting your reputation, um, you want to be ahead of some of these complexities and at least at least know what you don't know so that you can ask for help when you need it. Oh, very good points. 
Um, Justin, uh, what kind of impact do you anticipate on student the student athletes' ability to hire agents? Um, I guess what I'm thinking of is, uh, do we foresee a scenario where student athletes are hiring agents even before they've signed a letter of intent with the school? So high schoolers signing, and then what kind of ripple effect that might have um, in other areas? Yeah, I think with with agency guidelines, we're looking at a lot of different regulations. Obviously, the NCAA is updating their agent regulation um, as it relates to name, image, and likeness rights. Um, they're going to allow representation um, as long as it's not, you know, to secure professional sports opportunities. So there is going to be some assistance um, for for student athletes in terms of having appropriate representation to to make good decisions. Um, the states have some different requirements on um, the states who passed legislation. Uh, Florida has some different requirements to NCAA in terms of if you're an attorney, you have to be licensed in, in Florida um, to do this. And obviously with every state too, each state has agency regulations. Some aren't as forced, um, is uh, the same the same aggressiveness as other states. Um, some aren't enforced at all. Uh, so you're going to have some some different issues there as well. But I think the key is figuring out, you know, what is what are your requirements, both from a state and a NCAA level? Um, and then, you know, really, I think making sure that from a student athlete perspective and from an institution perspective that you're getting appropriate representation by competent professionals who can really help you in whatever you need their help for. So. Maybe your representation is to secure a marketing deal. Maybe it's hiring a lawyer to help you start a business, form an LLC, capital raise, things of that nature. It depends what you're looking for, but I think the key is really finding good representation. And from a school standpoint, making sure you're you're really working with athletes to, to bet, bet who they're working with. I mean, this is inevitable. And I think there's a, a common, you know, misperception that, you know, all agents, you know, are are out for interests that are contrary to the school. But I think in, in this situation, I think it's really important to have a strong relationship, you know, in a working relationship to understand, you know, kind of what the issues are and to make sure that that good decisions are made. Because if you if you sign with the wrong agent or you hire the wrong attorney, if you're a, if you're an athlete to help you with some of these things, then then you're you're talking about potential repercussions down the road that that are just going to be a, a headache to deal with. Um, so I think you're looking at a lot of different issues there as well. Yeah. So Katie, what um, what should athletic departments be doing right now to help prepare and protect their institution and their athletes uh, from financial risks related to NIL? Um, well, Justin said this earlier, but NIL is coming regardless of what the pandemic does. And it's unfortunate timing, uh, but you're going to have to you know, not keep it on the back burner and start really thinking about it. And I would start with internal um, education and remembering you don't know what you don't know. So at least if you know what you don't know, you can know where to go to get some help. So, um, you know, you don't have to be an expert in these areas, but, um, you know, really thinking about what is it, you know, a lot of you are already starting to engage with these third parties out there to help um, you know, promote your athletes and maximize their NIL, and that's great. Um, partner with them, but think about the gaps as it relates to financial and legal risks and um, how to fill those gaps with resources that you can refer to just to make sure you're protected. Um, so don't forget that. And then I would say educate other campus stakeholders as well. It is a hot topic. Um, people are going to be interested. 
people that don't understand it in the day to day, um, you know, they get confused by what's a state law versus NCAA regulation and then what's Congress doing at the federal level. And so, you know, really educating them on the status of things, especially those that are responsible on campus. If you have an enterprise risk management type framework and you have someone that's monitoring those types of risks, that's a risk you want to have them monitoring. So they really need to understand it. Um, so as you as long as you can educate your staff internally and your campus stakeholders, go ahead and get ahead of that. Um, and then, you know, you don't want to start too early with your athletes unless you start to hear that they're getting bad advice and creating side businesses and, you know, things like that. You want to maybe get ahead of that um, and, you know, remind the athletes and the parents that you are planning to help prepare and protect them as well when it comes to these risks. Right. And Justin, same question to you. What what can athletic departments be doing to prepare and protect on the legal side? And um, are there some resources on your firm's website um, that they could go to for more information on that? Yeah, so I think, you know, as Katie said, we've spoken about already, this is coming, so be prepared. And so the first thing is, and rightfully so, this is this is going to be a recruiting tool for institutions to attract the best athletes to their institution, and they shouldn't shy away from that. Um, but what that requires is the first thing is, what is your name and vision like this program going to look like? Like, what is it going to, what is it, what's going to be involved in it? Is it going to be, you know, are we going to educate students on just how to market themselves from a branding perspective? Are we talking about just like social media promotion? Is that like the big deal? Are we going to go a little bit deeper than that and do some financial literacy training and, and some basic tax information to kind of help them understand things from that end? Um, are we going to go beyond even those things? And are we going to talk about how do we run a business? What are the tax implications of running a business? Um, how do you run a business where you do a capital raise? How do you look at employment issues, IP, intellectual property issues? Like, I, I think this this is a really great opportunity for institutions, not just to look at, you know, how do we give our athletes an opportunity to have a brand, but how can we use, you know, this the passage of this legislation as part of our overall academic mission. I mean, we can use the name, image, and likeness rights as a catalyst to really providing students with a, a broad-based foundation of just business knowledge. I mean, we're talking about so many different issues from marketing to legal to, to tax to finance, all these different things come into play. So why not use that and create a program where you're benefiting student athletes, not just for the short term when their personal brand has value, but for the long term, where they're going to leave your institution with the ability to really do something, you know, really good that's going to influence the rest of their life. That's really important. And that should be, I think, how these programs should be primarily looked at. Once you have an idea of what that program looks like, that's written. you got to figure out, OK, how can we run this program without getting ourselves in trouble? Because obviously, at the end of the day, the institution also needs to look out for protecting itself. So what are we looking at from an NCAA compliance perspective? You know, obviously the NCAA is going to have different rules. There's going to be a third party administrator that's allegedly going to be looking at some of this, although the details are extremely fuzzy and shifting um, as it relates to that. But I mean, so some of the things like the NCAA legislation proposal says, you know, you can it's the institution's option whether you're going to allow athletes to have agreements that can can that are can conflict with your current agreements in terms of can the same you know entity sponsor the institution and the athlete and that's going to be institutional discretion so with that in mind if you're going to allow you know some of those things to happen 
you know, how do we look at both of those agreements to make sure we're not breaching our own contracts? Um, if we're going to run a program, how do we educate? How do we publicize, you know, certain athletes to make sure we're not running a foul with Title IX? Um, from an NCAA compliance standpoint, how do we monitor this? How do we monitor the, these details to make sure we're not violating NCAA rules and ending up in front of the Committee on Infractions? As it looks right now, I mean, if you look at the typical compliance office, especially your non-Power 5 institutions, we're talking about one, two, or three people, you know, kind of being the lead and taking on all this, all the compliance responsibilities for, for themselves. It's one or two people. How are we going to add this to their plate? You can't have the same type of program your Power 5 school is going to have and then expect your compliance officer to run it. That's that's an impossible hmm. ask. And if you ask them to do that, guess what? Violations are going to happen and you're going to pay more money on the back end than on the front end trying to figure it out from the start. So I think institutions, you know, you know, to summarize, number one, what do we want to do? What do we want to offer? How are we going to offer it? Who do we need to bring in to help us, you know, make those offerings? Is it all internal? Are we going to bring in external partners to help as well? And, and who are the right parties to do that? Who are the experts in, in you know, accounting and tax? Who are the experts in NCAA compliance? Who are the experts in Title IX? Who are the experts in marketing? Who are the experts in, you know, venture capital? Who do we bring in to solve each one of those issues? If we can do it on campus, great, because it's going to be cheaper. But if we can't, or if there's just like not the bandwidth for those people to help, then we need to bring in external partners if we're going to make that an offering. And then once we do that, what do we need to do from a risk management standpoint to make sure the things we're doing don't get us in trouble from an institutional perspective? So I think those are the big things. So going back to your to your your final question, if, if you were looking for resources from us, you know, bellawoodlaw.com, I've written a bunch of different articles on name, image, and likeness legislation. One of the main ones is going to summarize kind of where everything's at, both from a federal perspective, looking at those bills, what they say, where they're currently at in Congress, um, looking at all the different states that have both introduced and passed legislation, what their bills say, what they allow and don't allow, and also what we're looking at from a regulatory standpoint, looking at what, what's happening with the NCAA, Divisions 1, 2, and 3, looking at the NAIA, and also looking at what some of these uh, the lobbying groups are, are kind of introducing, what they think um, legislation should look like. It kind of is a compare and contrast of all those different things. In addition to that, I have a couple of trackers. One is posted right now, and that looks at all the different states and the federal bills and kind of gives you a synopsis of where those are at. Um, and then finally, which we're going to probably have coming out later this week, I have a past legislation tracker, which is going to allow for a simple side-by-side -side comparison on 10 or so key issues from an NCAA perspective. And then the five states who have already passed legislation, those being Florida, California, New Jersey, Nebraska, and Colorado. It'll basically allow you to say, what is this, what does this uh, legislation look like for allowing the use of institutional marks? It'll kind of allow you to look at, you know, on a, a cross-panel, you know, view of what those six different components have said on that specific issue, which is important for schools when you're kind of trying to analyze, well, what's going to happen in Florida versus what we're going to be able to do. It's going to allow for a really simple side-by-side -side comparison. It won't be overly wordy. It'll just say, hey, here's what it is. Here's what you can do with it and go from there. So that'll be available on our website later this week. Great. Well, both of you shared a lot of great information this afternoon. Um, our final question, and we'll start with Katie. Um, what are you enjoying uh, as far as brews today? 
So I wanted to get in the holiday mood and thanks. I, I posted a few options on Twitter uh, last night just to get some votes and, and input because um, I couldn't decide. I went with the St. Bernardus Christmas Ale. Um, it's a Belgian style holiday beer. It's pretty good. Excellent. How about you, Justin? And Justin, uh, I'm sure yours, I hope, I hope one of yours is a homebrew. <laughs> it is It is a homebrew. So I have uh, St. Nick's Holiday Sauce, which is a, a gingerbread stout that I brewed. Um, so it's, it's, it's a pretty good, pretty good choice. It's a holiday spirit. Um, it's a little, little bit of a, a heavier beer, which is good since we're on such a, a cold wave in, in Florida of 50 <laughs> to 55, 60 degrees today. So yeah, that's what, that's what I'm having right now. Very good. Well, I'm drinking uh, Accumulation from New Belgium, which is a white IPA. Um, it's fine, but I, I, I think I actually I'd rather probably be drinking what you made, Justin. Uh, it sounds <laughs> sounds better actually. So, um, and as you mentioned, it is a cold wave here in Florida. Dropped all you know all the way into the 50s today. So, um, so we're all bundled up. But yeah. Um, well, Justin, thank you for joining us today. Uh, it was a pleasure, and um, and we thank our listeners for tuning into News and Bruce Sports Biz as we advocate for college athletics financial voices to be heard. Um, if there is a topic that you'd like to see covered on a future episode, or if you'd like to join us, please contact us through our website, jmco.com. In the meantime, you can follow us on social media for more news as the collegiate athletics landscape continu continues to rapidly evolve. Cheers. Cheers.